Good morning, Concord Bible Church. Janine, good to see you. Your husband's out checking things and really love what you guys do for us. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Good, good high school group. Bye. Have a great time. Everybody doing good? Yes? It's a good Sunday? It's a good Sunday. Rejoicing in the Lord. He made this day, right? This is it's an all-good thing. The uh, sermon notes are in your church bulletin. If you want to take notes, you feel so led to, to write something down that God is revealing to you through this message, that's wonderful and great. I'm not going to give you all the answers, but there's a good skeleton sort of outline here for you. And then on the reverse side are the life group questions that we'll be reviewing this week in life groups. If you're not in life group, you can always show up. There's, you can look on the bulletin. There's a lot of things that are going on. Meeting the people's houses, discussing, reviewing, praying, supporting, encouraging, all the above in life groups. So that's what these questions are about. I just had made a comment uh, earlier uh, in the earlier service about uh, Jeremy's sermon last week. If you were here and caught his sermon. It was just an incredible sermon on, on the whole thing regarding um, the power of the empty grave. That was really moving for me in terms of what the resurrection looked like in real life. That the resurrection power of Christ runs through our veins. And that everything, whether, whether you're on the top of life or down in the valley, however you want to term it, it's, it's um, all the meaning of life comes through that resurrection power. And that's what we read in the New Testament. In, in 1 Corinthians 4.20, it says that the kingdom of God is not one of words, but it's of power. And the Apostle Paul was, was just good to remind us that he wanted to know Christ more each day and know the power of that resurrection. And he also promises us in Philippians that... God has not given us a spirit of weakness or fear or timidity, but a, a, a spirit of power, resurrection power within us and love and a sound mind. So thank you, Jesus, for the pastor's message last Sunday. That was really, really good. Okay, so Stephen had, had read... The scriptures, it's out of Ephesians, and there's a, a pretty long section actually in context, but we're going to focus on two verses today, and that's Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Everybody turn there, that's what we're going to use as our scripture, we're going to focus on that, we're going to unpack it probably pretty thoroughly in terms of what it means to imitate God and to love as Christ has loved us. Very simple message. There's a, there's a lot to it. I'm really hoping God will use this message to challenge all of us. So let me, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. How you continually mold and shape us, transform us, reveal to us your truths found in your word. We are so grateful. So grateful. I just pray, Lord, that this message teaches us, challenges us, 
convicts us that we would be able to find application in your truth. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and how you led him to to write this letter to the church in Ephesus. I pray, Lord, that this message would be about you. That it would be honoring and glorifying to you and be less of me. In Jesus' name, amen. So everybody turned to Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Are you there? Okay. Have you ever wanted to be someone else? Think about it. Think about it. Ever wanted to be someone else? Where you actually cherished a person so much that you studied them, and maybe it wasn't this like secret sort of study, but you just kind of hung out with them, studied them, and you, and you wound up kind of copying their personality or smile or the way that they dress or their talent. And it was kind of scary because maybe when you got too close, you kind of felt like they were becoming like you and you were becoming like them. All right. I'll tell you, I had sport heroes and I had rock heroes. And my sport heroes, when I was growing up as a kid in Southern California, it was Sandy Koufax. Great pitcher. That was in my elementary formative years. As I got into junior high, a little bit of high school, it was Tom Seaver. And then it was that 100-mile-per-hour fastball guy, Nolan Ryan. I wanted to be like him. And so I, I remember my mom giving me this article on Nolan Ryan. And I read it over and over and over. It was a Newsweek. And, and, and it, it, I just, I was so impressed with this guy being able to throw 100 mile per hour fastballs. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to copy that. So what I did is I started changing my own windup. I was playing college ball at Humboldt State. I don't think they have a baseball team anymore. But it didn't matter because I would practice and, and put things into my windup that uh, I would practice on during the summer and the win- and winter and fall and, and come spring when I when I get to the mound, I knew it was coming. I just knew it. My coach would 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 come out. What in the bleep are you doing, Huffman? I can't believe. Would you quit the fancy stuff? And just throw the ball. Just throw, I mean, just, just, just quit it. Just, and he'd, he'd kind of walk off. Like, so much for my imitation of Nolan Ryan. It didn't work. I never came close to throwing 100 miles per hour. <sighs> and then there was my rock star. Now, I'm going to date myself here. 70s rock. Keith Emerson. One of the greatest rock keyboardists of all time. Probably still is, by the way. Just check him out on on YouTube. He did some incredible things on the piano and the organ. Not to mention destroying his organs on stage and and synthesizer work. And it's just unbelievable keyboarding work. And I was so inspired by Keith Emerson. I mean, I had posters in my dorm room. Pretty sick. And, And so I decided to take this beginning organ class at Humboldt State. Three units, three units. I thought, this is going to be an easy pass. I go to class, and soon I, I discovered, as I, at my first day, the instructor says, now you know how to read music, right? 
need to know how to read music. I just thought Keith Emerson just like just plays. Who needs to read music? Didn't pass that one. Oh, you know how to play piano. You took beginning piano, right? No, didn't do that either. So I don't know how I wound up staying in this beginning organ class, but can I tell you for three units, I worked my tail off going and trying to play this Bach fugue piece on the campus organ hours at night. It was horrible. I barely passed the class. Nope, I was not cut out to be Keith Emerson. But as I got thinking about this whole thing about imitating others, I came to this realization that I think generally we are just not satisfied of who we are. So we gravitate to something or someone that makes us feel better about ourselves. And we constantly look for replacement personalities, replacement talent, replacement dress, replacement looks, replacement sexual identity. And we're drawn to seeking acceptance and identity for something that is just not real within us. So think about this, that that we are gaining significance out of our lives from the fake and from the lies of this world. And so someone who we may be imitating may not be the healthiest for us. And as my baseball coach said, just throw the ball. And let me spiritualize that comment. Just be a Christian. It's not that difficult. Just be a Christian. And Paul passionately tells us in this letter in Ephesians that he says there is only one, only one that we are to imitate. And that's the Holy One. That's the living God of all creation that we are to imitate God. If you're reading the King James Version, it will say to be a follower of God. If you're reading an Amplified Bible, it says to be a copy of God. Thomas Akempis wrote in his brilliant masterpiece devotional in 1441 called The Imitation of Christ. And he starts off with a verse that we learned last week in John 8:12 about not walking in darkness. He writes, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, saith the Lord. These are the words of Christ by which we are reminded that we must copy his life and conduct if we wish to be truly enlightened and be delivered from all blindness of the heart. Now, the Apostle Paul knew that this city of Ephesus was an extremely dark city. And, and, and men's and, and people's and, and women's hearts, they, they could be very, very dark in terms of what they were imitating going on around them at that time. But Paul knew that the light of Christ could pierce the darkness and actually change the community and the culture that they were in. That light overcomes the darkness. Now, what was going on in Ephesus at the time? Just, this is just for you to get some sort of idea, context, about this church in this place in Ephesus. Ephesus was about 300,000 people. It was the gateway to Asia. It was a harbored, a port city. 
And it was, I, I believe, the fourth greatest city at that time. So it was big. There's a lot of things going on. And everything centered around the mother goddess idol worship of Artemis. The temple worship of Artemis. Romans, the Romans called her Diana. And it had this, this tsunami effect on all what was going on in this city. Let me give you some occupations at this time. Wizards, sorcerers, witches, astrologers, fortune tellers, false teaching, false shepherding. This was an economic flourishing city that, was, that people were drawn to religious tourism because of the temple of Artemis. Not to mention the money that was rolling in. There was a huge banking industry. There was occultism. There was pagan celebrations. Now, amongst all this, picture this church in the middle of it all that was stable, that was mature, that had their identity and meaning in Christ. And all the influence from the outside trying to impact what was going on in this church. Paul says nothing else, nothing else will do except Christ. The book of Ephesians is also mentioned, or should I say the church is mentioned in Revelation as the first church for their deeds and perseverance to withstand evil, meaning sexual immorality, meaning feasts to idols and celebrations to idols. You had this port city with all this new stuff pouring in, new people, new philosophies, new, new things for people to sort of get sucked into this vortex. What was a Christian to do with all this influence? What was a Christian to do when the normal thing was just to imitate the culture and the things that were going on during that time? Well, you get a better perspective when you start at the beginning of Ephesians and work, work towards the back. Because what Paul does in this book is he bolts down some foundational truths right into Christ to build this spiritual building. You have to be founded on God's truth before you actually start practicing his truth. And this is what Paul was trying to do in the book of Ephesians or should I say his letter of Ephesians. And here's what he does. As believers, which were the, which were the church, which was the church, saints, every one of them he called saints. And so the truth was is that every saint shared in the spiritual blessings of Christ. Each believer was redeemed through his blood, Every believer was forgiven of their sins. Every believer knew the mystery of God's gospel, was sealed, knew the hope that they had in Christ, that they were saved by grace through faith, that the blood of Christ brought them near to God. And both Jews and Gentiles were now heirs to one big, happy family in Christ. And they would be strengthened with power through his spirit. This truth, all these truths 
would serve as a foundation for them to stand on when the winds of change, cultural change, new philosophies, false teaching would come in, that they would be able to stand upon their two feet spiritually when any storm would come their way. They were founded on Christ. And those scriptures that I just had mentioned that are found in Ephesians apply to us today. The truth stands then as it does now. And with this great blockbuster of truth within us, Paul tells us we can now start practicing and living that out in Christ. Paul says that we are his workmanship, that we are to put on Christ every day, that we are to walk in love, in light, in wisdom. Some of your translations probably use the word live out rather than walk. But the word walk, meaning in the Greek, means everything that we do, all the round of activities that we're involved in in our lives, to walk it. So we come to our passage in Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I do believe that the original translation on this manuscript says, be therefore imitators of God as beloved children. We are to imitate God, as Paul says, as our, as imitate God as our highest standard. And to truly live out this incredible life that's been given to us freely by the Lord in a society that was so into itself and serving false gods was to imitate God himself to copy him and his character. Jeremy had preached on this uh, maybe a couple years ago and told us that the word mimic comes from imitator. The word mime comes from this Greek word. That a mime or someone who's mimicked is a person who copies the characteristics of behaviors or of speech of another. Now follow me here. I'm not too I'm not absolutely sure this is what the apostle Paul meant, but it's got to be close. Mime was one of the most is one of the most ancient theater arts in this world today. Have you ever seen a good mime? Isn't it interesting that you can tell who they are or who they're imitating? and what they're doing by just using gestures and actions without words? Is this what Paul's telling us? Is this what he's saying in terms of imitating God? That people be so drawn to our lives by the way that we act in a genuine and authentic way? Maybe. That's where the word mime comes from. To help us understand this word imitation, imitator, even further, the apostle tells us that we are to imitate God as beloved children. As a child who looks and respects their daddy, he wants to take on the same character, the spiritual character of his Abba Father. Ephesians 1.5 says that we have been adopted into his kingdom as children. Now imagine that. Children of God in this family singing 
dancing, worshiping the dad of all dads. Jesus has given us the permission to call our father in heaven, daddy, dear daddy, the dad of all dads. He's a father who loves us immensely and continues to love us. In Christ, we have new identities. As children, we have a new name. We have a new purpose. We have new identities. And not only is it for our good, it's to establish unity in the church body as well. Every day we get up and we look in the mirror before we go to work, before we go have our breakfast, we're looking in the mirror and only God knows that we desire financial independence. That we are attracted to the good looking. That we are attracted to the wise talking. That we crave all the toys that are thrown in front of us. We get so sidetracked, so sidelined by copying the world And God tells us through Paul that there's only one, two, three things that really matter. It's all about life, the spiritual life. It's all about the spiritual grace and truth. Yet we go on and we continue to to seek status and recognition from other people. In fact, it sometimes gets so bad that we wind up becoming our culture and admiring ourselves so much that we become hedonistic in the way that we look at the world and ourselves. So in Ephesus, these this church community had to live in a culture that had the habit of imitating people with ungodly motives. And the church then, as well as the church today, would stand out as the uncommon, I'll use Jeremy's word, the uncommon community whose love for Jesus would be so drawing and so attractive to show the true meaning of life. In those days, it was not a five-story church building that attracted people. It was not a facility on 20 acres with 20 pastors or a pastor wearing a robe or whether there's a drum set on the stage or having a billion-dollar budget. That was not the attraction. The attraction was a spiritual life with spiritual light and spiritual love for people us and others. Does that make sense? Yep. That's what Paul was trying to get to the heart of the believers in that that church. Paul says, be a mime for God. That's, That's our model, a follower of God as a dear child. And the Greek word imitator used as a noun was often used to exhort believers at that time. And when used with the verb genomai, it often meant that you were to be, 
to become that it would be continuous in your life. And let me shorten this up for you as I'm kind of thinking through this. What it really meant was that you were to believe in who Christ was and what he did. And it just continues. Faith just continues. It doesn't stop. So when he says, be an imitator, it's ongoing. It just doesn't stop when you accept Christ into your life. There's four things I want to share with you. It's not, necess- it's, it's not on, your, on your outline. And you can write these down if you wish. But they're just some things to highlight of what an imitator of God looks like in real life. So the first one is that the imitator of God knows God's truth and lives in trusting faith. Really easy. That Jesus is the object of our faith. And we have to be very discerning. The apostles said throughout Scripture to be on the alert, be sober-minded about any sort of false teaching that comes into your homes as well as the church. You had to be careful. You had to be discerning of what you were listening to. Because think about this church, what they heard every day about the worship of Artemis, the worship of Diana every day, day in, day out. Well, I guess it kind of makes sense after all. I guess we can kind of have Christ and Artemis in the same sort of litter. It, It doesn't work that way. It's God's truth. There's no other substitute. The second point is that the imitator of God pursues those in need as a wounded healer. Let me explain what that means. By Christ's wounds, we just celebrated communion and what it means. By the wounds of Christ, we have been healed from our wounds, our wounds of hurt, our wounds of bitterness, our wounds of unforgiveness, our wounds of, 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 of sin in our lives that only you and God know, that we have been healed of those wounds. We are to go and minister as imitators of God to those who are in need. And I really believe that the workplace is a wonderful place to do this. How about grieving with a fellow workmate? How about just listening to a workmate who's struggling in their lives to take that time at work to do? How about serving someone at work rather than demanding it? Oh, I'm not going to fix that copier because it's not in my job description. Doesn't work that way. We are there to serve. How about praying for your boss or encouraging your boss who may be the the meanest, baddest, most demanding boss ever and God has put you in that environment for him to see the light of Christ. Don't check out because of a mean boss. God may have you there for very good reasons. You are to be the imitator of God in that workplace. How about in our church family here? Just, just going to throw it out. We have a lot of senior saints in this church body that would love an encouraging call, that would love a hello, that would love a visit, that may just be very alone in their lives. 
Let's not forget our, our senior saints. We are to pursue those who are hurting as wounded healers. Thirdly, the imitator of God looks for opportunities to strengthen relationships. The kingdom of God is about relationships. We read that through the entire Bible from start to finish. It's about people's salvation. It's about people loving each other. Strengthen relationships with the right motives of love and grace. We are to be a loving, faithful, caring husband, a loving, faithful, caring wife, a loving, faithful, caring father, a loving, faithful, caring mother. That where grace and forgiveness becomes our lifestyle in our homes. That's being an imitator of God. Ephesians 4.32 says, Hey, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving each other just as Christ has loved you. That's what it looks like. And just spending time with our families. We shouldn't be going home because we feel guilty spending time with our kids. We do it because it's a godly thing to do and it's the right thing to do. Right? That's an imitator of God. The fourth thing is an imitator of God rises above the culture. You have been redeemed. It is our job to go out and redeem the home for Christ. It is our job to go redeem the workplace for Christ. It is our job to redeem the community for Christ. And you and me become a copy of God that engages in good deeds, shines light, sprinkles salt, flavors a stale and hopeless community, promotes peace, and addresses others from a spiritual standpoint rather than pride, greed, or lust. Four things about being an imitator of God. When I was in school again, hey, these are this is how I this is how I learned about life. But I, I I had this desire. Certain times in my life, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to wear his shirts. I wanted to use his chapstick. I wanted to wear his shoes. I wanted to drive his Fiat. I wanted to drive his Land Cruiser. I wanted to listen to that Keith Emerson rock music on those big JBL speakers. I can't hear today, so that's probably the reason why. Um, and I, I, I went to college taking my dad's shoes. They were, they were unique shoes. That's all I can tell you. They were camel, leather, something a little on the weird side, but I loved them. Showing up with these, with these shoes, just about this part of my pant length. Pretty doofy. My wife, my wife, who wasn't my wife then, saw those shoes on me and goes, those look like bowling shoes. Bowling shoes? You've got to be kidding. There's no numbers on the back? What's up with that? She gave me the name Bowling Shoe Bob. 
what do I do with that, Andrew? I said, what do I do with that? I, but you know something? Here it is. Wait for it. Wait for it. I wanted to be like my dad, and I loved those shoes. And I was willing to take the heat. It's crazy and, and uncommon or whatever. I was going to wear those shoes no matter what sort of flack I took. It's the same with Jesus. Think about it. Only better. Because he's our priest and he's our prophet. He's our king and he's our savior. We desire as Christians to walk in the same sandals he walked, how he lived, how he loved, and his sandals become our shoes. We imitate it and live it out in love. Going on to verse 2. All that in one verse? What the world? Let's go to verse 2. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Is this just not the gospel? Is simply put, don't you love how God just sort of orchestrates this in two verses? This is the gospel presentation that we are to follow God, verse 1. And we are to love others as Christ has loved us. Is that as simple as it gets? Sometimes I think we overcomplicate things, but this is truly the gospel. How did Christ love you, love me, love us? And how does he love you today? Well, let's start with the fact that Christ is being so unselfish, so deeply compassionate that he offered up his life again on the cross for us. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 say that we are brought near to God. Hallelujah by him. And he became our peace for us, for the church. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus emptied himself, becoming a servant to all, being humbled and obedient to the point of death on the cross for you and me when I, I deserved it. This offering by God himself in the flesh was love in action. And was it done? Was it done when the planets were all aligned, that I was thinking all the right things, I was doing all the right things and I wasn't sinning and I was just in a perfect state when that happened. What's the answer? No. We were his enemies. We weren't doing the right things and he died for us. The scripture says that he demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners and what he did made us perfect and complete. He offered himself for us and to God and it became a fragrant aroma to God. A fragrant offering. And this is connected to the offerings that you find in the book of Leviticus. Where the priest would take, as Jeremy had said, a communion, would take an unblemished animal and offer it up. And why it's burning and the smoke is rising to heaven 
In Leviticus, it tells us that that was a soothing aroma to the Lord. It was honoring to the Lord. It pleased the Lord. And this is what this verse is saying. When Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice, as a fragrant aroma, it was pleasing to God. And it's all out of love. I don't want to overcomplicate this. I don't want to I don't want to get too technical, too theological, but it was all out of love. I want to share with you a story in the book The Rabbi's Heartbeat from Brennan Manning. And he talks about a person by the no, the name of John Egan who just may be like you and me. John Egan, who died in 1987, was an ordinary man, an unheralded high school teacher. He spent 30 years ministering with youth. He never wrote a book, appeared on television, converted the masses, or gathered a reputation for holiness. He ate, slept, drank, biked cross-country, roamed through the woods, taught classes, and prayed. And he kept a journal, which I like. And this journal was published shortly after his death. It is a story of an ordinary man whose soul was seduced and ravished by Christ Jesus. Egan, a flawed man with salient weaknesses and character defects, learned that brokenness is proper to the human condition, that we must forgive ourselves for being unlovable, inconsistent, incompetent, irritable, and pot-bellied. He knew that his sins could not keep him from God, They had all been redeemed by the blood of Christ. In his repentance, he took his shadow self to the cross and dared to live as a forgiven man. Struggling to shrink the illusory self, Egan pursued a life of contemplative prayer with ruthless fidelity. And during his annual silent eight-night directed retreat, he was visiting with his spiritual director. Now here's, that's the background. Here's what he wrote in his journal. Listen carefully. It is a game changer. The director states something that I will ponder for years, and he says it very deliberately. I asked him to repeat it so that I can write it down. John, the heart of it is this, to make the Lord and his immense love for you constitutive of your personal worth. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. God's love for you and his choice of you constitute your worth. And we discussed it. And he he continues to say, the basis of my personal worth is not my possessions, my talents, my esteem of others, reputation, not kudos of appreciation from parents and kids, not applause and everyone telling you how important you are to the place. I stand anchored now in God, whom I stand naked, this God who tells me, you are my son, my beloved one. The love of Christ was transforming to John Egan. He was radically changed by the love of Christ transformed. These two verses and the book of Ephesians is is not about copying the world or imitating the world. 
It's allowing your mind and your heart to be shaped by the love of Christ. That his love molds, it shapes, it slices, it penetrates, it circulates, it changes and replaces this this secular impressionism that we often practice every day. It's a game changer. Christ's love is uncommon. And we are to imitate Him. And there's nothing else that will satisfy. I want to ask you just three questions. They're on your they're on your outline. And this is for you and me, for us. And as I, as I state what the questions are, you can read them. Just between you and the Lord, just write down what comes to your mind. What is God saying to you when you ask yourself these questions? You don't even have to answer them now if you don't want to. You can answer them later in the week. You can pray about them. You can talk to myself or an elder or the person next to you for prayer. Whatever it is. But I'm hoping the questions will will put it all together for you. And the first question is this. Is there anything or anyone besides Jesus that you're trying to imitate? Is there anything, anyone besides Jesus that you are trying to imitate? Second question. Is your life being defined by believing that God accepts you and loves you so deeply? Is your life being radically changed and being defined by what you're believing in terms of God accepting you as you are just with all the warts and pimples through all of our messes where we are right now are you allowing him to accept you are you allowing his love to penetrate your heart and it goes very very deep and thirdly whose shoes are you wearing today It's not going to be my dad's camel hair leather shoes. It's not going to be those. Will it be the sandals of Jesus today, tomorrow, and into the future? Okay? I pray that that this message um, would be used by the Holy Spirit to challenge you and convict you in any way. This is all God's work. And let me finish up in prayer. And I'll just kind of hang out here if you need prayer or anything else that you want to talk about.
Thank you, Lord, for giving us yourself as the ultimate highest standard to imitate. I realize that we are by no means perfect to accomplish such a task. And it's a pursuit. It's striving. And we're going to fall flat on our face. And we're going to make mistakes. And we're going to sin. And we're going to just just do this along the journey. But God, thank you. That it's not, uh, it's not about doing anymore because with you it's been done. Let us take the pressure off ourselves and understand what God's truth is all about. That we would be the mimes. We would be the imitators of you in a society that so desperately needs to be loved. We are thankful for the incredible unbelievable, unlimited, sacrificial love that you have shown each one of us here. Let us go out and be the servants and the sharers of that love that you want us to be. We need your strength every day. Let us be led by your spirit every day to teach us and guide us along our journey. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.